Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. Court Justice Frank Murphy once opined that freedom of religion has a double aspect, freedom of thought and action. In other words, to be truly religiously free, one must not only be at liberty to believe, but act consistently with those beliefs. This concept of religious freedom, the right to live and act according to one's faith, has historically been assaulted by totalitarian government authorities. For example, early in the second century, when Pliny the Younger was a provincial governor in the Roman Empire, he wrote a letter to Emperor Trajan asking whether he was correct in executing Christians who refused to burn incense and worship of the emperor. Trajan said he was, not because he cared that Christians did not believe that the emperor was a god, but by refusing to engage in emperor worship, Christians were seen as rebellious and declaring themselves standing apart from the reigning social order. In modern times, such oppression came to be seen as a profound violation of human rights. Thus, the very first clause of the First Amendment states, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. More broadly, Article 18 of the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights provides, quote, Everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. This right includes freedom to change his religion or belief, and freedom, either alone or in community with others and in public or private, to manifest his religion or belief in teaching, practice, worship, and observance. Alas, freedom of religion is often as much under assault these days as in the time of Pliny the Younger. Indeed, assaults on religious practice are becoming increasingly commonplace. The questions are why and what can be done about it. No one has put more thought into this urgent matter of human freedom than my guest today, Sam Brownback. Brownback served as the State Department's Ambassador-at-Large for International Religious Freedom from February 2018 until January 2021. He also served as governor of Kansas from 2011 to 2018, and prior to that, he represented his home state in the United States Senate and in the House of Representatives. While a member of the Senate, he worked actively on religious freedom issues in multiple countries and was a key sponsor of the International Religious Freedom Act of 1998. When Brownback left government service, he formed the National Committee on Religious Freedom, 
a nonprofit organization concerned with defending religious liberty in the United States. This is his third appearance on this podcast. Sam, welcome to Humanize. Thanks, Wesley. It's uh, always a pleasure to join you and to be on this podcast and just to talk to you. You're just such an interesting guy. Well, thank you so much. Um, you know, you spent decades in politics serving even as Kansas Secretary of Agriculture, a member of both the U.S. House of Representatives and Senate, Governor of Kansas, a high official in the U.S. State Department. But now you've shifted your focus to defending religious freedom. Why did you make that change? It's necessary. It's uh, where I think the world has kind of pointed me, and it's where God's placed me. I, You know, Wesley, I think right now, in this moment in time of history, we're going to go one of two ways. We're either going to have religious freedom for everybody everywhere all the time, because as the world globalizes more and more, it gets more and more integrated, and we'll either embrace that uh, article of the, the uh, UN Declaration of Human Rights and have it for everybody, uh, or... Uh, you're going to have more and more clashes of civilization and clashes of religion. And in the West, you're going to have this secularized clash with traditional religious values. And it's not clear which way this thing is going to go. I know which way I think it really needs to go for human flourishing is you need religious freedom. But you're right. Right now, we're in the middle of one of the biggest human rights battles uh, in the modern era, and that's over religious freedom. And of course, that's the freedom to not believe too, right? Yeah, absolutely. This is the, if, if you're a humanist, uh, if, if you're an atheist, this is your right not to be forced to believe in anything or be conformed to any societal pressure that that, that might be. Yeah, and that's what puzzles me. Uh, as As the society, at least in the West, seems to be secularizing, for want of a better term, uh, there's been less attention to freedom of religion, but as you just pointed out, freedom of religion includes the freedom not to be coerced into uh, religious practices with which you disagree. So it seems to me everybody has a stake in this. I think so. I, I think everybody has an enormous stake. I think the world has enormous stakes uh, in this. You, you move down the track of we're not going to provide religious freedom. Then the people that are religious are going to buck you on it. They're going to push against this or they're going to move. Uh, you're going to have all sorts of conflict that are going to come out of this. I, I grew up um, near a number of Amish uh, people. And the, this particular group of Amish didn't want their children sent to school past the age of uh, past the eighth grade. Uh, and the state was forcing them to send their kids to school, and that, and finally, an accommodation was made that they could get a GED, and they didn't, they weren't forced to go into school. But it was this accommodation process. I just don't see the society being willing to accommodate uh, people off of their deeply and sincerely held religious beliefs, and you're just seeing more and more of this clash of civilizations, I guess you would call it, of a secularized civilization with a religious one. And, and you know, people who preach tolerance tend sometimes, not tend to, but sometimes are intolerant of people with different beliefs. Even more dramatically during World War II, which was an existential struggle for the country, um, religious conscientious objectors, uh, pacifists, were not forced to fight. Right. Uh, because that freedom of religion was deemed that important. 
Yeah, and 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 it is that important. It is that important. I, that's what I think that people don't recognize that if we can get this one right, the other human rights will flourish off of this one, or they'll they can build off of it, or they can use this. You get the freedom of religion right, you can build the freedom of assembly, the freedom of speech, the freedom of press off of this and use it. But you get this one wrong, and your others are going to collapse down uh, as well. It's going to be easier to get the other other items as well, and that's why, to me, this is this is really the human rights struggle of our time. And it is critically important that we get it right. We get it right in the West. We get it right in radical Islam. We get it right against the communists. We get it right against the communists in China and running that place and everywhere around the world. And, and you're going to have a better place. But the problem is, Wesley, I mean, we are in the middle of this fight right now. I head out to uh, Taiwan uh, shortly uh, to an international religious freedom summit there. Uh, that's going really right at the difference between Taiwan that grants and guarantees religious freedom and China that literally is at war with all faiths, at war with Islam, at war with Christianity, at war with Buddhism, at war with the Falun Gong, and arresting and killing people based on that war. Yeah, I was going to get into China, uh, but might as well do it now while we're talking about it. Uh, it seems to me that the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, is afraid of religion because it means that people will not owe their sole fealty to the state. Would would that be an accurate statement? I, I agree with the first part of it, but not the second. I think they absolutely are afraid. I think they're scared to death of religion. But I think the reason they're scared to death of religion is they've watched what happened to the Soviet Union and in their belief, in their view, and also in some they've watched and reading Chinese history, it is religion is the only institution that's strong enough with enough people behind it that can take down a government. Uh, and that's why I think they're at they're at war with faith. And Wesley, this war doesn't end at the Chinese borders. They're taking it everywhere. In Nicaragua recently, you've seen this. The Ortega regime really go after the Catholic Church, lock up Catholic bishops, close down Catholic radio stations and colleges. He's been in power 25 years. Why are you doing it now? He's aligned closer to the Chinese Communist Party, to China. And I think they've told him the only institution that exists in Nicaragua that can take you down is the Catholic Church. And you've got to put your boot on their neck. That's very interesting. I wasn't aware of the Nicaraguan situation. Um, Catholic, uh, you're a Catholic, but but you're not just standing up for Catholic freedom of religion. I mean, I've seen you uh, very vehemently defend Muslim freedom of religion, uh, Buddhist freedom of religion. So you're you're a, a universalist when it comes to protecting freedom of religion. Would that be accurate? Absolutely. Uh, now, I, I follow Jesus. I, 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 my faith is very important to me. I am a practicing Catholic, love the Catholic Church. Um, but the, the freedom of religion doesn't work unless it's for everybody. It has to be freedom of religion for everybody, everywhere, all the time, or it doesn't work. It can't be just Christians get it, but the Muslims don't. Or the, the Jewish uh, Jews get it, but the Buddhists don't. It's got to be everybody. And and then you can build a coalition of all of these faiths and atheists to stand for each other's freedom of religion, and you're much stronger. 
when it's everybody right. standing together, when it's the United States fighting for the Muslim Uyghurs to be able to practice their faith in Xinjiang, that's a much more powerful case than if we just say, well, we're just going to fight for the Christians that are that are in China. Um, no, it, it's it's got to be. That's the only way this thing's going to work, and the only way we'll win the win the fight. Yes, I I quite agree with that. Uh, some sometimes I've heard critics say, "Well, wait a second. Separation of church and state means that the state can have no involvement in religion at all, um, and that separation of church and state can actually interfere with." Um, what we're talking about in, in this program, which is guaranteeing the right to live according to one's faith. Do you see a conflict between those two principles? Uh, well, I, I think the separation of church and state gets misinterpreted by a lot of people. Separation of church and state does not mean the removal of the church from the public square, which is what a lot of people look at as saying, okay, you can't have a cross in the public square or any religious signs in the public square. But Read that First Amendment again. It says you can't establish the government, will not establish a religion, nor will the government prohibit the free exercise thereof. And you just look back in the history of the 13 original colonies. They were of different faiths. You had the Anglicans in one place and the Baptists and the Quakers and the Catholics. And they come from a Europe that's fighting and killing each other off of religion. The Catholics and the Protestants were fighting and killing each other. And, and Jefferson and others, in their wisdom, said, okay, we're not going to have a state church. that so will not be a, a, a church of the United States. But the Baptists, if you want to practice your faith, the Catholics, you want to practice, the Jews, you want to practice your faith, the Anglicans, we will, we will not prohibit that whatsoever. And indeed, we believe religion to be essential to maintain in a free and open society. And you can hear and see the founders talking about that all the time. So I, I think people get confused uh, on this. Uh, we should have a robust religious practices in the public square, and we should not have a church of the United States. Uh, sometimes freedom of religion uh, as free exercise is what we're talking about, but uh, is thought of as a conservative issue um, as opposed to a liberal issue. But it strikes me it's both a conservative and a liberal issue. What do you think about that? Absolutely. I, I, it's a foundational issue to maintain a, a open, uh, free society like ours, where you have religions from all over the world of every different type and stripe practiced in this country and a number of people that practice no religion. And you can't maintain that diverse of a society without having this real guarantee uh, and open practice of religion. You can't have Orthodox Jews uh, and Amish uh, Protestants uh, and any number of other groups be able to practice in this country and us have a nation without guaranteeing their rights to, to take that practice into their lives, not just say it's freedom of worship, which some people want, where you can just do what you want to do religion-wise when you're in a, a, a church or a mosque or a synagogue. No, it's got to come with you 24-7 wherever you go into work and only with that free exercise clause are you going to be able to maintain that in this diverse society we have. 
Yeah, especially in a society which is so heter- uh, heterogeneous as our- ours is, you you have to be able to walk down the street with people that have different beliefs than you and not fight each other. Yes, and that's that, that's the whole point. Is this is what's maintain is necessary to maintain peace and comity uh, for the world? Absolutely. Well, I was governor of Kansas. We had a uh, a guy uh, go to a, a Jewish synagogue and uh, try to kill some Jews. Uh, and he ended up killing a man. It was a Christian uh, man that he killed. But, um, you know, I immediately, as governor, condemned that act. We put extra police there around the synagogue. We had two self-radicalized Muslims that tried to or planned to blow up buildings in the state. We prosecuted them. We captured them. We prosecuted them to the full extent of the law. And we say, we will not have, we will not allow this. We will not yeah. tolerate this. And that's what the government's role in this is to protect this right. So you don't have this vigilanteism or one group saying, well, we've got the better religion. And so we're going to force it on you. No. The government's role is to say, no, we are going to protect people's right to practice their faith, even if you vehemently disagree with it. They have a right to practice that faith, as long as it's peaceful. Right. And so that allows for a peaceful uh, cohabitation of of our planet. And it also allows people to live thriving lives that have meaning and, and dignity. Yes. And they don't have to live in fear. And that's how you're going to you're going to grow your economy that way when you can have this diverse, you know, just group of people that can function um, well together. And I, and I would like to say to Wesley, we put the bar too low. We we often will talk about tolerating uh, each other. OK, we'll tolerate this religion. We'll tolerate that. And that's just the bar's too low. You know, I mean, uh, my faith teaches me you're, you're to love one another. You're to even love your enemy. So I think we've got to get that bar of people that you disagree with up to at least the level of respect, and we should be shooting to love them, even if you dis- disagree with them. And I, I think that would so help our society today if we looked at the other person saying, I just think you're crazy on your ideas, but I love you anyway. Right. And don't take it personally if people disagree. That's, you know, people have to find, I think the pursuit of truth, capital T, is the most important thing that human beings do. And we have to give each other the freedom and liberty to do that and trust them to find the right way for themselves. Yeah. And I've, I have learned so much in talking to other people about their practice uh, of faith, even though it's, it's different than my own. You know, each can discover different aspects of the natural law of how, how God made the universe. And I have Native American friends and uh, uh, different friends of lots of different groups. And just listening to how they process the spiritual world enlivens mine and enlightens me. And hopefully uh, can create some interesting conversations when you each share your deepest faith and deepest truth. Yeah. And how much must God be smiling when that takes place at that point in time, when he sees his children, all of us, kind of 
talking it through with each other and in in a in a caring and respectful and a loving fashion even these uh, deeply held disagreements uh, it, it yeah. really makes for beauty i have a dream of uh, and we we worked on i worked on this as ambassador we didn't get it pulled off but i want to see the three major abrahamic faiths key leaders of each of these faiths of judaism christianity and islam in their full robes their full uh, regalia uh, of their um, faith um, standing together in front of Abraham's tomb. Oh, wow. And just pointing back to dad uh, here. <laughs> uh, and I, I just, I want to show, and I want to take that picture and show it to the world because here are the three, the three major Abrahamic faiths. It's not all the faiths, but these have major influence around the world, these three faiths, and claiming the same patriarch. Wow. Yeah, that's very, that's very interesting. So they're brothers and sisters in essence. Yeah. And least the, cousins. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and the group with the least claim on Abraham is probably you and me as Christians. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I want to get back and, and go around the world and, and focus on some trouble spots, but I'd like you to, uh, first, let's start with something positive. Are the, is there any good news in this field that you're looking at right now that, that uh, can encourage us that this freedom is being defended and is being supported? Yeah, I, I think the biggest encouraging news is just the level of awareness. Uh, and that's a precursor to really getting problems solved as people have to see the problem. They've got to uh, be aware of it. And there's more awareness of religious persecution taking place now uh, and the persecution that's happening in this country and around the world than there's ever been. There's, there's a bigger alliance uh, taking place. There's more of the faith community of all faiths gathering together to stand up for each other's religious freedom. There's now an alliance of nations, International Religious Freedom or Belief Alliance, that has 40 countries in it standing up for religious freedom. That's not existed before. You've got an International Religious Freedom Summit. You've got a, a, a meeting of foreign secretaries uh, annually taking place around the topic of religious freedom. So there's more discussion, there's more formal settings for this topic to raise, be raised than ever before, and we're starting to go mainstream in the foreign policy and security space, which that's what we've got to do. This has to become a major foreign policy issue, not a boutique one. It needs to be a major issue in the security field, not just this sort of thing, well, you know, okay, let's hire a chaplain or two and we got it. Um, and I'm, I'm seeing those things starting to set up. If, if you're ever going to deal with genocide in the world, you have to start with the issue of religious freedom because almost every genocide in the last hundred years has been of a religious minority. You, you've right. just you got to guarantee the, this. The Armenians uh, uh, from the Ottoman Turks, of course, the Holocaust. Uh, so, yes, uh, that's very clear. And speaking of genocide, let's talk a little bit more about China. Uh, the Uyghurs, who are a Muslim uh, group, uh, uh, ethnicity, uh, in Western China, are under tremendous um, pressure. Uh, they have concentration camps. They have slave labor. The women are being forced into abortions or sterilization. Uh, uh, 
you actually have slavery in China based on uh, one's religion. Uh, this has been going on for some time. If, are you seeing any increase in uh, the willingness of the world to stand up to China and say, yes, you know, we, you know, you're economically powerful and a lot of us have very deep economic ties with China, but this is unacceptable. Are, are you seeing any of that or are we still being a little gun shy? I think we're being pretty gun shy of it, Wesley. Uh, and I'm, I'm disappointed to say that the United States has stood up uh, and has declared this a genocide. And by the way, um, this is at least the third ongoing genocide that the Chinese Communist Party is doing against a religion right now. The Tibetan Buddhists, they've been trying to just run them out uh, for decades now. The Falun Gong, they have brutalized. Uh, and really Christians, they are coming after much more aggressively now, too. But, uh, you know, here, China is the second largest economy in the world. And people just kind of seem to turn a blind eye to these uh, these genocides. It's kind of like, well, yeah, there might be something going on here, but we just we're just not going to talk about it and we're not going to mainstream the discussion. The United States and more of Western Europe is doing it now, uh, but it's got to go much deeper. That doesn't seem to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there are any meaningful sanctions or preventative efforts being taken. There's some talk, oh, please don't do that. And then uh, Chairman Xi will say, oh, well, mind your own business. And then we move on to uh, uh, tariffs and so forth. Um, that's got to change. Otherwise, the, the phrase never again, uh, which came into being after the Holocaust and the uh, the slaughter of six million Jews, th- that didn't just apply to, to anti-Semitism. It's supposed to apply to any genocide. And yet we see this kind of, oh, well, what what's one going to do wringing of hands? Well, I... The the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection Act that the Congress passed and the Biden administration signed, um, that's been kind of the first bill to step up uh, and put some meaningful sanctions on this forced labor uh, issue. I hope they get a bill through that has some real teeth through it to it. Uh, you know, on on other uh, issues in dealing with China's uh, as well that the Congress will push that and. You can tell, uh, really, Wesley, that the Cold War has started between the United States and the CCP. Um, we're, these two economies are pulling apart. We're, you know, it's slow to happen, but as the Chinese threatened us with um, particular rare earth minerals or medical supplies, as they're threatening us security-wise, uh, particularly in, in Asia, uh, we're getting our back up. We're starting to form different alliances. You just saw the uh, Koreans and uh, Japanese meet with the U.S. Uh, with the U.S. president. This is very good and important. Um, but I, I don't. I don't think we've really emphasized this topic of what the differences are between the U.S. block and the China block on religion and freedom of religion, because the Chinese block is anti-religion. And the U.S. block, what we stand for, is freedom of religion. And these are very different views of, of how, you, how you seek human truth and meaning and human dignity. 
Also with China, the social credit system uh, seeks to uh, inhibit uh, the practice of religion because if you are seen with the facial recognition cameras uh, going into a church, uh, you can get demerits. And if you get enough demerits, you're not going to be able to participate in the society. You won't be able to get on a bus. You won't be able to hold a job. Your children won't be able to go to school. And that, to me, in many ways, uh, this kind of social credit system is is more effective than terror because everybody, you, you know, terror, you, can, you can't terrorize a billion plus Chinese citizens in the sense of the full-on gong, which are being uh, terrorized, and there's hundreds of thousands of them. But you can warn all of your citizens that if you actually decide to go to a church or go to a mosque, you will not be able to participate in society. Your children won't be able to get married. And uh, that, to me, is even more effective than the kind of genocide that we were just discussing. I agree. If you want to see a, a diabolical-looking future dystopia in the world. Start reading. No, they won't let you go there. But start reading stories about daily life in Sinjan, with a camera every fifty yards, a mini police station every hundred yards in a big city. Social credit scores. Um, all these things that watch you, facial recognition, gait recognition, they've taken genetic samples, they track the cell phones, who's calling you on your cell phone, they do a word analysis, if the word Muhammad comes up, you get a social credit down score and watched. Uh, and, and this is this high tech police state that China has constructed and is now starting to export to other places around the world for here is how you control your religious population. And once they get the currency digitized, this is the one that I'm really concerned about, then they'll be able to turn your money off too. You And anybody so, that calls you or talks to you or connects to you, they can turn their money off too. And you're just looking, this is really a, a scary prospect for the future. By digitized currency, you mean that the... Uh, let's say at the dollar. It's all electronic. Here. There's no physical. It's all electronic. Currency. It would become a cashless society. Cashless society. There's no, there's no physical paper, but now everything moves very fast, very efficient, but it's also completely controllable by the people in the middle of the system that run the system. You, you could be cut off if, if, and we're going to get into debanking by the way, uh, a little bit later, which your organization has suffered. Uh, but you can actually begin to uh, cut people off from being able just to participate in the normal activities of society. Absolutely. And and I think the largest corporations um, uh, have a role in this, either to prevent that kind of oppression or to cooperate with it. And I'm afraid that in China, some of the very co uh, corporations, corporations um, such as Apple and others, that have actually pressured states like Indiana not to pass a Religious Freedom Restoration Act cooperate with, uh, with, with the worst kind of oppression. So they boycott, they threatened to boycott Indiana over that and did boycott it. And, and uh, as I recall, the uh, law was kind of backed off a bit. 
yet these same corporations cooperate with China. So it strikes me that the major difference is money, that money talks and a lot of money is being made from China. It is. You know, I mean, you're, you're seeing the Chinese economy dictate um, a number of uh, actions in this country. That Hollywood, when was the last time you saw a Hollywood movie that uh, was anti the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party? Or let me ask it differently. Have you ever seen a Hollywood movie? And here is a group of people that are doing forced organ harvesting. That, that they take Falun Gong and, and, and other religious minorities and they subject them to the death penalty for trumped up cards, uh, causes and charges. And then they harvest their organs and sell them or put them in Communist Party members. And you would think, I, oh, my goodness, I, I can't believe you, they didn't do this in medieval times. And this is yeah. happening now. And I, I just I can't I can't believe then that. Well, why wouldn't Hollywood make a negative movie about this? Why wouldn't the NBA protest what's happening in Xinjiang and they'll protest uh, voting rights issues uh, in the state of Georgia? You're going, really, guys, you know, yeah. I mean, stand up and be heard. But the NBA makes a lot of money off of China. Hollywood makes a lot of money off of China. And it starts changing the way people act and, and work here. Absolutely. Let's go to another hotspot that I just recently learned about, uh, Azerbaijan, uh, which is in a religious cleansing of Armenian Christians. You went there on a fact-finding mission. I, I just recently learned about this, and I'm, I'm right now trying to uh, negotiate uh, an interview with an archbishop uh, of the Armenian Christians that hasn't been finalized yet. So I'm hoping that that will be done soon because I want to get into a lot of detail about what's happening there. But give us an overview of of the uh, Armenian issue uh, currently. Well, Armenia was the first Christian nation on earth. In about three, 400 uh, AD, they declared themselves a Christian nation. And they got bad geography. Uh, they're right in the middle of a lot of Islam, and they've already had one genocide of the Armenian Christians during the fall of the Ottoman Empire in about 1915 to 17. You had over a million Armenian Christians that were killed, just slaughtered. Uh, and now you're and saying— many were crucified, too. Yeah, it's brutal. I went to the Armenian Genocide Museum, and they had— Turkish uh, people standing in front of beheaded Armenians as if they were in front of the prized pig at the fair. Wow. And uh, it just was gory. Well, now you've got 120,000 Christian Armenians in this region called Artsakh. Others caught in Nagorno-Karabakh. They're surrounded by Muslims in Azerbaijan, and they're being strangled, and they're being forced out just like so many other Christians are being forced out of the Middle East by Azerbaijan with the backing of Turkey. And so I was over there and we're pushing back saying, no, we're going to stop the, these ancient Christian civilizations from being forced out of their homeland, that they've been there for thousands of years and they shouldn't be forced out now. And so that's why 
I went, and that's why a number of people are starting to really push uh, to stand up for the Armenian Christians in this region called Artsakh. So when you were there, did you see evidence of uh, the oppression that is being charged? Yes. They closed the one corridor that Armenia proper had into Artsakh and to the Armenian Christians there. It's called the Lachin Corridor. It's 21 miles long. It was protected and guaranteed by the Russians. The Russians are distracted now, and they aren't guaranteeing or protecting it. And they kind of want Azerbaijan to help them out. So they're they're not pushing on Azerbaijan to keep it open. So Azerbaijan just shut the, shut the corridor uh, off. And now you've got this strangling. Uh, and, and they will let you leave Artsakh if you're an Armenian Christian, but they won't let you go back. So if you have to come out for medical treatment, you can't go back in. They just is this slow strangling. And what you're going to see happen, Wesley, is what's happened so much to the Middle East. The Christians get pressure. They get threatened. They leave, go to the United States or Europe or Canada. They start a new life there. It's fine. But meanwhile, you've got these ancient Christian populations that just keep shrinking and shrinking and forced out and persecuted. Um, in the Middle East and North Africa region of the world in particular. Let's go to Russia, since uh, Russia was brought up. Uh, The Orthodox Church there during the Soviet era was tremendously oppressed. I mean, a million priests and uh, bishops uh, either imprisoned or killed, uh, and the attempt to destroy the Russian Orthodox Church, which failed, uh, and the Orthodox Church is now on the rebound. But... uh, it's got a really close association, unfortunately, with uh, Putin, but also uh, in Russia now, other faiths are under stress, such as Jehovah's Witnesses. What's happening in Russia that uh, you can uh, discuss with us? Well, it's just, I, this is my estimation of it. It's just way too close alignment of state and religion. Uh, you know, and there's a fair amount of history of this in the Catholic Church that didn't go very well. Um, Religion should exist separate and distinct and and operate itself. This gets us back to the connection, the nexus between non-establishment and free exercise. There you go. That's a perfect example of it. It really is. Because we've, we've done it before where Christianity has run a country. And you can kind of bump along okay for a while, but then what if somebody wants to do somebody something else or doesn't want to follow the dominant religion or instead of being a Catholic, they want to be a Protestant or instead of being a Protestant, they want to be a Catholic. And we had thousands of people killed uh, in those fights for years and years. And so you're just going, look, it's just better off to not have an established religion by the government. Yep. And that's for free. That's for the free exercise. So that's so the individual can be free to exercise their faith. And instead, what you've got really shaping up in Russia now is you've got an, an establishment of a religion, the Russian Orthodox Church, now by the government of Russia. And then that tends to persecute other faiths, even if they're other, even if they're Christians, Protestant Christians, they, they have more difficulty uh, practicing their faith than there now. Yeah, that it's very interesting and kind of ironic considering, and I'm an Eastern Orthodox Christian, uh, so, you know, I'm talking about my church speaking generally. I mean, there are different uh, Orthodox 
Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, the church in America. It's all part of the same church, just administered differently by different people. But uh, I, I think I, I really like the point you made that the Russian example, how the Russian Orthodox Church and its now cl- close connection with Putin shows the importance of both aspects of religious freedom, non-establishment and free exercise uh, so in terms of supporting general freedom. And the irony is that the Orthodox Church was so oppressed uh, that one would wish that uh, it, there was more wisdom in, in uh, going forward. But let's move on to Ukraine. You know, the country's at war with Russia, uh, obviously an unjust war. Russia attacked without cause. But I read recently that the Ukrainian government is suppressing the Orthodox Church in Ukraine. Uh, for example, uh, a major monastery in Kiev uh, was closed uh, near Kiev. Um, and uh, Ukrainian cathedrals that, uh, it, you know, were associated with the Russian church have been given over to another Orthodox church that's not associated with the Russian church. So you find that in war, I guess, religious freedom tends to take a back seat. And it's not supposed to. <clears throat> Under the UN Human Rights Charter, uh, the religious freedom is protected even in war. But I, I yes. think what you've got happening now in Ukraine is kind of this example of, of what's well, what example of what you're talking about, but it's, it's also, it, it, to me, I'm, I'm supporting what the Ukrainians are doing. I think this is terrible what, what Russia did and its invasion. I think the Ukrainians should have sovereignty over all the land that's, that's part of Ukraine. But I don't think the Ukrainians then should persecute uh, the Russian Orthodox. And some will say, well, they're spies for Russia. And if they're spies, then prosecute them as spies. But to shut down major cathedrals, to, I, I don't think that's right. And I think it will backfire on Ukraine. I think it will further um, uh, strengthen the Russian people uh, in their support for Putin attacking Ukraine. Uh, it, it yeah. just, don't do this and give Putin an excuse to, to kind of further stir up the Russian people. Let, let them freely practice their faith, those associated with the Moscow Patriarchate. If there are spies, prosecute them as spies. Put the evidence out there. Don't shut down these major cathedrals and monasteries. Let let the let the faith be practiced. And and I think it uh, it weakens the dichotomy, the distinction that we could have between Ukraine as a free country and Russia as a despotism. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right there. It really does to show that to both the Ukrainian people and the Russian people and to the and to the world. I think this is a um you know a, a clear example of that of uh, that particular case. I oh, by Let's the way, to- you know, I, I the Orthodox Church is a lovely church. I've been to a number of monasteries. I've been to Mount Athos uh and it's just extraordinary and um so, I mean, it just, it has a lot to offer, but then, you know, when any time a church gets pulled into the political space like that or gets too closely aligned, it, it you know, it loses its aroma as a church and becomes uh, more of an arm of the state and it, and it loses its mystique, it loses its appeal, it loses its luster, I think. We've seen uh, criticism in that regard here in the United States where some churches get 
very affiliated with one political party and maybe other churches get affiliated with the other political party. And then people, because of their politics, start to not like those churches. And and that's probably a mistake to get too affiliated as a religious uh, entity with any particular political movement. I agree. I agree. Let's, uh, let's look at Myanmar, um, which doesn't get in the news much. It used to be called Burma. Uh, but I remember that Muslims are being forcibly removed from their homes and that certain Christians were under tremendous assault. What's happening there? Same thing. You've got a military government that's taken over. Um, you've got uh, a genocide of uh, Rohingya Muslims in the south. You've got really genocidal efforts of Christian populations more in the north uh, that are taking place in in. Um, Myanmar, Burma, uh, by the military government that's generally Buddhist affiliated. Uh, so you get militant Buddhist, which when I first heard that term, I was going, well, wait, wait a minute. You, <laughs> that's an oxymoron. Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> wait, wait, wait a minute. You can't, uh, this, <laughs> this isn't my, you know, uh, th- this isn't doing it for me, guys. I don't, I don't see this, but that's really what's happening. I went to, um, Cox Bazaar in Bangladesh and met with a number of Rohingya and the, um, how they had been treated in Myanmar was just terrible. Um, and I, I just, I've met with a number of different Christians, how, how they've been treated. So you, you get this, you've got, these are genocidal efforts and it does need more of the world's attention on it. I don't think we put enough pressure there. And some people in our foreign policy apparatus will say, well, that'll just force Myanmar more into the hands of China and I'm going, well, we need to stand for truth, A, B. I don't think we're going to force them more uh, into their hands. I, I think we need to stand up for what's right. And, and this is wrong, what they're doing to both Christians and Muslims. Yeah. So that is uh, more of a, a religious uh, motivation in Myanmar. Myanmar. I, yeah, it's a big part of it uh, because of the affiliation there of the government. It also, you know, Wesley, this is an interesting one because in that region, you've had this massive expansion of Islam. And any religion that's not Islamic is feeling like they're uh, being isolated and, and shrinking. So in India, you've got Hindu nationalism standing up. In Burma, you've got Buddhist nationalism standing up because they're saying, well, wait a minute. The Muslims have taken over this country and this country, and and Afghanistan used to be a Hindu nation, and now it's a Muslim nation, and Nepal is getting threatened. And so as Islam in that region has really expanded substantially, you've kind of, it's created sort of this counter forces that have nationalized, militanized, and now you're seeing a lot of religious persecution in India that has historically been a very tolerant nation of different religions. It's a nation where three major religions started there themselves, and and now they're uh, persecuting people of other faiths. That brings up the point you made early in our discussion, which is, you know, we have to have everybody walking side by side, even though there are different creeds, or you end up with this kind of killing, oppression, uh, and uh, um, really suppression of people who are in the minority. And eventually your group might be in the minority. Well, every religion is a minority somewhere. Uh, 
Yes. And if we don't guarantee religious freedom, you will have the clash of civilizations that Huntington wrote about. Because civilizations are generally built on a religion. Uh, and even if people don't practice that religion regularly, they adhere to the tenets of it. And they generally view it like in Russia, there aren't 5% of the population that regularly uh, goes to the Orthodox Church, but they still kind of adhere to the, the tenets of the Russian It's a cultural, cultural issue, yeah. Which is cultures are built on religion, and the yeah. religions are going to, these are going to fight if you don't guarantee religious freedom, and you will have Huntington's clash of civilization. And that's setting up in Africa right now, very big. Yeah, discuss that. I was going to get to Africa very shortly, but let's do that now since you brought it up. I know that in uh, uh, Nigeria, for example, tremendous oppression of Christians. There is. And this is the clash of civilizations where you don't guarantee religious freedom and the government isn't strong enough or willing to enforce it. Uh, you get this clash of civilizations. So you've got Muslims really attacking Christians. I'm sure there's some retribution that's taking place from Christians towards Muslims, but Africa as a continent, I, I could cite that fight between Muslims and Christians to you in a number of different countries in Africa. This continent that's really just starting to come of its own, Africa is, is the youngest continent uh, on the earth. It's the future of, of the world. Um, it is setting up for this entire war between Islam and Christianity. And in Western Africa right now, Nigeria and a number of surrounding countries in the Sahel, you've got a, a militant Islamic convention going on. More militant Islamic groups are centered there, are being funded there in Niger and Chad and Burkina Faso and Nigeria just that entire region. And that's, that's your next caliphate. That's your, this is the war that's setting up. And we really should be getting right in the middle of that to try to stop this from taking place. And there's things we can do. Such as? Yeah, I, I've been a big one on the Abrahamic Accords uh, that what, what President Trump did, which was a, an amazing thing to get these Islamic countries to recognize Israel. I, I want to have an Islamic or an Abrahamic faith initiative. I mentioned the picture I want to have taken, but I want major, and I want the governments to help pull this together. Major Christian religious leaders and major Muslim religious leaders go to Nigeria and say, our faith does not allow the killing of somebody of the other faith uh, as a way to proselytize. Uh, there's just war doctrines. I'm not talking about that. But some of these Islamic um, militant Islamic groups in particular will say, you know, uh, we should kill the infidels. And this is what Allah is calling us to do. And I want major Muslim leaders standing up in Nigeria and saying, no, that is not that is uh, that is not the doctrine of Islam. This is not here is why this actually reads. And to really push back theologically against mm -hmm. the militant Islamics. Now, we haven't done that before. We'll push mm -hmm. back militarily. We'll push back economically. But we won't push back theologically. And that's where we've really got to go. 
is get these theologians to stand up to say that is not Islam. If you're saying you you kill the Christians because they're infidels and that's the only reason. Yeah, and the military uh, option has limits. I mean, we saw that in Afghanistan. We were there for 20 years, and now the Taliban are again in control of that country. And from what I'm reading, and I was going there next, uh, they're not keeping their promise to respect religious freedom, and they are now engaging in profound oppression of women and uh, non-Taliban-believing Muslims. Absolutely. I've spent the better part of a year working with a small kind of rump group, getting people out of Afghanistan that were religious minorities. And if you were a religious minority there, you were hunted. There are, yeah. last I checked, there were eight Sikhs left in Afghanistan, eight uh, left. And the only reason they were there was because the Afghan government kept their holy books so that they would have eight Sikhs there because the Sikh cannot leave the holy book without somebody there to practice the faith. And the government was doing that just to say they had Sikhs still in their country. Eight of them. <laughs> Uh, and you're you're going, oh my goodness! Uh, and, and whereas they had driven all the other Sikhs out, a number of them had been killed. And if you were yeah. a Christian convert from Islam, boy, Lord help you! Uh, yeah. I mean, you were hunted. And I, I mean, now thankfully we got a lot of them out, thousands really out of, of the religious minorities. But the Taliban are not keeping their word at all. <laughs> It gets very frustrating uh, because there are limits to what can be done. I mean, we're no longer in Afghanistan, and I guess it's up to uh, people like you who have worked with others to work behind the scenes to try to help these people. Well, there was a number of former military um, actors, uh, um, intelligence uh, actors, and then religious groups that had been working or Western NGOs that have been working. We all kind of formed a group that found each other and then started getting people out and finding third countries, uh, finding places in the U.S. that would take uh, these Afghan uh, refugees. We should never have have, uh, left the way we did Afghanistan. This has really hurt a lot of people. And it's hurt us. It's hurt the United States. And I, I think it's part of the adventurism that the Russians are on now is a a part of some of these consequences of things that happened uh, at part of the calculation off of when we pulled out of Afghanistan. We're beginning to run out of time. So there's some countries I was going to discuss that I'll I'll pass until the next time, but I would like to bring up the issue of anti-Semitism, which uh, seems to be uh, (laughs) it's thousands of years of anti-Semitism historically from, uh, from the Babylonian captivity to uh, Rome destroying the nation of Israel and the diaspora uh, happening and so forth. Uh, Is anti-Semitism, the Holocaust is of course another example, is anti-Semitism abating now or is it uh, uh, gearing up to, uh, it's almost like the canary in the coal mine in, in some ways. It's it's growing again, unfortunately, uh, and it it never fully goes away. And I I can't tell you why um, it happens, but uh, and 
then and that we've got it back today. You would think after the Holocaust that people would say never again, did say never again, and at least towards the Jewish people, it would be never again. But that's that's not what's happened. Uh, and you do see this uh, persecution and the anti-Semitism continue to, and, and you're seeing it uh, rise in Europe. You see it uh, in the United States. Um, you, you see it in the Western world, the Eastern, you, you, you see it in a number of places. You see it in the Islamic, Islamic world uh, taking place. And it's, not, and it's not just, uh, you know, kind of fringe nuts who uh, might uh, act out because they've got mental illnesses or because they've uh, adopted a, uh, let's say, uh, a neo-Nazi attitude. I mean, we're not talking about just these uh, occasional fringe people. We're talking about organizational anti-Semitism. Organizational and just the, the marginalization of Jewish people. Uh, yeah. and of people willing to attack them because uh, they're Jewish. And you're just going, this is, this is completely wrong, and this is why the world has to constantly stand up against anti-Semitism. In the United States, you're beginning to see, it seems to me, uh, not the kind of blood persecution against Christians, but certainly some social persecution against Christians. We don't have time to get into it in real detail, but I, I, one of the things we've already alluded to that disturbs me a great deal is the idea of, of driving certain Christian organizations out of the ability to engage in normal business practices, particularly losing the bank accounts. Now, your organization, the National Committee on Religious Freedom, which of course is a peaceable organization, a legal organization, it's organized, as I understand it, to defend religious freedom here in the country, right? Yes. You had a a bank account with Chase, which would be a normal process when any new uh, uh, corporate, non it's a nonprofit, but it's incorporated, uh, starts. And then a few weeks after you incorporated and got going, Chase Bank suddenly said, all your accounts are closed. We won't do business with you. Is that what happened? It is. It is. We were uh, uh, operating less than 50 days. And uh, I went to make a deposit to help get the account up and going. And they said, oh, the account's been closed. Your money's going to be returned to you. And uh, we still haven't found out why. We were given five different reasons by uh, Chase Bank. And then as we went public with it, I found a number of social conservative in particular or Christian affiliated groups that had been debanked or deplatformed or a number of different things. I, I think this is one of the issues we've really got to start pushing back on so that that faith-affiliated groups can operate in the public square and in the marketplace. There should be no um, distinction or, or limitations on people operating in these places, and yet you're finding it a fairly common feature uh, happening anymore. I, I think we have to be very vocal and push back on this. This is absolutely wrong. It should not happen in the United States. Yeah, it's it's very dangerous because uh, once you start allowing that, because, uh, you know, well, hey, I'm not a conservative Christian. What do I care? I'm a liberal Christian. They'll, they won't go after me. Well, how do you know that? And secondly, it's just plain wrong. I mean, yes, the First Amendment is uh, aimed at the government. But if you have large corporations uh, who that 
want to suppress certain belief systems or certain organizations, you're going to end up with less freedom because there's eventually going to be some laws passed that prohibit that because people aren't going to put up with it. And the organ, the big corporations, it seems to me, um, should be religious, uh, religiously neutral. It shouldn't matter as long as the business is lawful what people believe. I, I think you're right with that. And, and I think that's a better business model, too. When, when corporations start deciding they're going to be the social agents of change instead of just paying attention to what they do, like make a good beer, then, then, you're, going to, then you're going to upset people. Then you know, you're putting yourself into the culture war that people right now don't kind of want more players in the culture war. They want fewer players in it. Just yes. you know, do your business. Uh, and that's where I think, it's a bad, I think it's a bad business practice. I think it's a bad practice for human rights in the United States and around the world because what starts here is not going to end here. Uh, and I think it's a dangerous whether you're on the left or right, because what starts on the right isn't going to end there. It'll be starting to apply to the left at some point in time. Yep. Uh, we're almost out of time, but there is one interesting uh, twist to this that I just came across. Denmark is actually close to passing anti-blasphemy laws that would punish as a crime disrespecting the Koran and the Bible. And it strikes me that that's as misguided as interfering with freedom of religion, because religions have to be willing to accept criticism, just like any other uh, uh, philosophy, organization, or uh, political persuasion. Yeah, uh, blasphemy laws, they they don't work. Uh, apostasy and blasphemy laws. You've got death penalty in 12 countries for apostasy and blasphemy. Uh, and a number of different groups are working, and I've been supporting them to get those laws overturned. I would hate to see the West go back and doing blasphemy and apostasy, even as, you know, as I read the Bible daily, uh, try to daily. And um, I, you, you're right. They need to be open and subject to uh, scrutiny, interpretation, criticism, um, but uh, not protected, I think, under the law with penalty from the state. I don't think that's the way to go. Because the state's trying to protect itself. Oh, well, if we uh, do this, then perhaps we won't be attacked by uh, more radical people. But I think it'll cause greater discord. When you tell a whole country that certain religions or certain aspects of faith are off limits to criticism, that's not going to endear those religions to those people, and it's not going to promote uh, mutual respect and comity. No, uh, it's, it's not. It's, it's a protected category for a certain group. And where do you stop? If you're going to do that with the Quran and the Bible, why not with other sacred uh, scriptures and text. Uh, then I, uh, I, I just think the the real standard, the play, the way to go is freedom of religion for everybody, everywhere, all the time. It's not establishment clause. Don't establish a religion; just protect it. That's the right to practice it is the, is the role of government. And if governments will get in that, that's the sweet spot that allows a very diverse society to operate. Allows the sort of the challenges to take place that need to happen to any in any society to any organization, but don't establish one, don't pr- protect it, 
uh, just to protect the practice of it. That's what government's role is. And and and, and uh, all of us should, you know, if somebody is uh, engaging in in a way of life that we, with which we disagree, that is not a violent and is not illegal. We should just say, well, that's their business, and 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 just be able to live together in harmony. That's the only way it's going to work. Because, as I think you pointed out in one of our previous interviews, religion is the most powerful force in human history. It is, and 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 it's also it's why it's attacked all the time by both governments and culture, as religion is the only institution that has enough strength, conviction. Uh, people behind it to stand up and challenge a government or to stand up and challenge a culture. And that's a good thing. Even if you disagree yes. with it, even honestly, if, if at times they may be wrong on something, this is, this is how we improve as a, as a people and as a species if we do that. And my own life has been so enriched by you know getting to know people that are Orthodox Jews or that are Amish or Muslims or Buddhists or Hindus. And what you get to see by that, I mean, it, it hasn't attacked me. What it's done, it's enriched me. You know, and I, yes. I think we really need to start looking at religion and freedom of religion in particular as this source of human dignity and development and not as any sort of threat to it. Absolutely. If people want to get involved in protecting religious freedom or some of your organizations, and we'll have links to uh, the National Committee uh, in the program notes here, uh, what would you suggest they do? Well, they can go on the, the website, thencrf.org, thencrf.org. Uh, on the National Committee for Religious Freedom, they can contact there. They can come to the International Religious Freedom Summit uh, that takes place annually in Washington, D.C. That's going to be January 30th and 31st uh, in Washington, D.C. this next year. Um, they can connect in with the International Religious Freedom Roundtable, the International Religious Freedom Secretariat that regularly convenes people together. And then there are a number of different organizations that work on religious freedom uh, domestically and internationally. They can plug into one of these groups that, that just uh, work on this. Uh, um, Global Christian Relief is one that I'm a senior fellow at uh, that does a lot of work helping people that are Christians persecuted around the world. Um, I would urge people really start getting engaged with this. This is a movement to protect it. It has to go grassroots. We have to win this at the grassroots level. It's got to be people just saying, you know, I'm going to stand up for it in my community, in this school board election, in this city council uh, issue. That's how we win this thing is really at the grassroots and people organizing to stand up for religious freedom locally and it expanding out. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. Well, what next for Sam Brownback? Well, whatever the good Lord calls me to, uh, I'm, I'm a blessed, I believe I'm the most blessed man on earth. And um, uh, I've, I've really been fortunate to serve in a number of different capacities. I feel this calling I'm on right now on religious freedom is a key issue that, that uh, I've been called and prepared uh, to do this work. And so I'm going to continue to push it. Uh, but uh, we've got a lot of work ahead of us in this. And um, and I'm, I'm a man of prayer, so I'm going to be listening to what the good Lord would direct me to. 
Well, Sam, thank you very much for being on Humanize, and I look forward to talking to you again. Thanks, Wesley. Take care. God bless you. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.